You're listening to I vs. I with Dr. Broderick and Zookman. I vs. I podcast.com. Nothing on the show is medical advice or medical care. Content advisory. This episode does discuss self-harm and suicidality. If you're not in a good, stable place with your mental health, you might want to consider skipping this one and come back to it at another time. So talking about grace, patience, um, and why that's important. I guess it makes sense to talk about like why we're talking about this, like get a little meta on it, which is um, I had an experience where I did not give myself any grace or patience and it almost cost me my life. Um, And that's not hyperbolic. Like I probably should not be here. And uh, I know we, yeah, again, we do have that disclaimer, no medical advice or medical care, but um, I'm going to talk a little bit about my own brush with suicide. Um, so if people aren't in a place to hear that, or they think like just hearing the topic, uh, might be like super upsetting, please turn this off. And I really mean Mm -hmm. that like one of my like initial Mm -hmm. downturns of like getting, uh, getting sick was, uh, I saw a piece of media about, about suicide and suicidality and really messed me up. Um, so if you're in that space, this might not be the spot and feel free to turn it off. Broderick, you have any, uh, you're the doc. You're, the doc. you're saying, you're saying what needs to be okay. said, man. That's really it. You can, you can tap out at any, at any moment. You don't have to, you know, listen to triggering material. Um, so yeah, yeah. And, yeah I'm kind of, and as a favor to us, please do so. Right. Like, I, I can imagine being in a space where you're like, maybe you want to self harm even by tricking yourself more. Please don't do that. Um, as a favor to us, just turn it off uh, and come back to it when you're in mm, a spot. Good point. Um, Cause I've been there. This is about my experience. Like I know what the fuck I'm talking about. I'm not sitting here um, trying to tell everybody uh, what to do. Uh, what I want to do is share my experience and like some of the, <sighs> just philosophies and wisdoms and perspectives that I've come to going through my brush with acute suicidality, making a plan coming very close to going through with it and, um, having it be interrupted by somebody who was just watching. Um, and if that didn't happen, I don't know if I'd be here or not, or maybe I would have brain damage to the point where I wouldn't be able to do a podcast. I don't know, but going back to this idea of grace, patience, why we need it. So, I was a very successful TV producer. Um, I produced shows for uh, Vice, uh, NBC. I had I had my own show on NBC. Millions and millions of people watching it on sports. Uh, sport. I did small sports documentaries. Um, Discovery. Uh, I worked for Al Jazeera. I I did. I worked for networks all over the world doing field production, directing. Um, and a lot of the mindset around that was not having grace it was you have a calendar what happens goes on the calendar you do whatever it takes to produce that segment if that means making a million phone calls if that means charming someone if that means um whatever that means you get the job done and a lot of people live in industries like that where failure is not an option and you do what it takes people who perform at a certain level, um, or even if you don't, even if you're like, you know, a, a newbie on a factory floor, 
I imagine there's a lot of spaces where failure also not an option. Um, a lot of people have jobs like that. So when I came to my recovery, that's how I approached it. I approached it like I was producing a TV show. Failure is not an option. This is my philosophy. Failure is not an option. I'm going to do everything there is that I can find to do. And if it doesn't work, I guess it didn't work. It is very all or nothing. And I was also very confident in my ability to fix things because that was my job. So when I got sick, we didn't know. We didn't know, you know, my family, my father came to uh, flew across the country to try to help me to get me into therapy, to get me a psychiatrist. And we didn't even know what mental health was. All we knew is that I was hurting myself. Um, I was, uh, I was, I had a summer where I was producing a movie, which was this movie called Punk Juice. You can check it out on YouTube. I was producing a new series for Vice and another independent film all in the same summer. I was really stressed out. I was just not sleeping a lot, flying all over the world. And then literally we had a tornado in Brooklyn that flooded my house. I lost almost everything I owned mm. right in the middle of that mm. while I was moving in with my ex-girlfriend and going through a move. And it just put me over the edge. It just put me just totally over the edge. And I wasn't eating right. I wasn't sleeping. I had uh, you know, totally unmanaged bipolar. I didn't know how to take care of myself. So yeah, my dad, my dad flew across the country. He was living in Oakland. I was living in Brooklyn. He stayed with me and my girlfriend and got me to a psychiatrist, um, got put on a couple of pills. Nothing. It didn't really help. It would help for like a couple of days. And then, um, and then I would not feel any better whatsoever. And, uh, so my mindset was very much like, okay, I got to get this done. I got to try it. I would look up alternative therapy stuff and I would just like always see I'm um, like on Wikipedia. Oh, this is bullshit. This doesn't work. Don't even try it. Um, so I didn't even think outside the box. because I would just look at Wikipedia and say, oh, EMDR. Oh, that looks like bullshit. Wikipedia says it's bullshit. Um, this is bullshit. That's bullshit. That was just my, my mindset. I was just like very, okay, I'm, I need what works. What's the most I would say, okay, look, it looks like meds works the most. Let's do that. Mm. Uh, so long story short, mm. like I moved back to California with my father and started seeing a psychiatrist, um, who I met on an airplane, um, who actually advised, I, I, I mentioned at the beginning, like I saw a piece of video i saw a documentary on on suicidality um she was a consultant on that film so i thought this was like a sign okay i've got to use this this doctor this doctor put me literally on a dozen meds within like maybe six weeks or so and that from then wow. i was like not in good shape um and so my mindset was that okay I'm doing everything they can. It looks like the, it looks like the studies tell me that um, meds works the best out of any therapy. They didn't work. I've been going to talk therapy for however long now. I'm in a tremendous amount of pain, and I can't even imagine a solution. So I decided to make a plan to not be here anymore, and I ordered some things in the mail to carry that out, and my father just just on a happenstance, just like open my mail by accident. 
and saw what that was. And that was my first entree into the hospital. Um, but it was very much that mindset of like all or nothing thinking it's up to me to get this done. And if I can't do it, then it's hopeless. If I really need help to get this done in a way I don't understand and isn't like easily accessible and accessible right now, mm. then, then it's not going to work. Mm. Yeah. And what do you think, what do you think from other people, you know, you needed throughout that, that process and maybe what are some things they said that you really didn't need? I was, so, I mean, I had, I had it so reinforced in my life that like that way of operating was the right way that I don't think yeah. anybody could have told me anything. Like I, I was successful in life because I turned down everybody else's advice and opinions. And I said, mm. I know the way to do this. You don't know how to do this. Growing up in a, in a, in a, in a, in a family of, of addicts, that's, you learn that lesson, right? Like these people who are trying to help me, they probably don't know anything. Okay. The doctors are experts. Let's go. And it was just very all or nothing, black and white. Black and white. Hmm. Yeah. And what, well, knowing what you know now, if, if time travel was possible, mm. which it is, it's coming up 2022 <laughs> y'all mark my words. Elon Musk got that up. on the plans. Well, um, what would you what would you say to yourself if you could sort of you know pop back into those really intense moments like yeah I mean yeah and the only the, the thing is like the only person that it could have been is myself because I was so exactly. self-absorbed because that was my survival mechanism growing up where you're the only sober person for like a mile where you know you grow up I've got, if I want to eat, I'm going to cook my own food. If I want the house clean, I have to clean the house. If I want clean clothes, I have to clean the clothes. You learn all these other people around me, they don't know what they're talking about. And if I listen to them, I might get in trouble or I might like not have clean clothes, right? So it would have had to be me. And what I would have said is like, look, you don't know how dysfunctional your entire experience of this world is and you've come mm. to this place where you can survive it and that's gotten you this far but now it's hurting you and you really have mm. to like find another way and take some time and that's not going to be a month or two that's going to be years and you have to change the whole direction for a couple of years to like really learn a new kind of muscle memory yeah, so you you kind of needed to hear that this is the end of the line, not for you, but for this way of relating to yourself and the world. And it's and I, I don't know what you think about that, like because sometimes so just just for every, for everyone you know for everyone listening. So I've never um, had a plan. I've never had like a cute suicidality, you know, an intense serious way. Sometimes like fleeting thoughts of oh man you know, this is difficult or, you know, be better if, um, but then also, um, you know, I wasn't, you know, the sober one, mm. um, which I think numbed a lot for me. Um, but I, I guess, um, you know, working with people who, 
um, do struggle with suicidality, you know, sometimes I feel, and Jesse, I'm curious, you know, your thoughts around this, that it is this sort of, this is my best, this is my best tool for coping. Um, this previous way that I've learned, um, whatever that habit is or whatever that way is that I've learned. So if that doesn't work, then there's nothing else that that will work so that it's almost like you become so identified with your coping tool that if it doesn't work anymore, that it's almost like you don't work anymore. It's almost like that thing. But then it's also the the psychological pain too. But I guess, yeah, what do you, what do you think? Because like I said, I don't have that firsthand experience. You know? I mean- yeah, there's that psychological pain, but for me, and I'm, I know everybody's going to be different, right? And and I, you know, but for me specifically, like if I knew there was a five year plan to be a totally like different person with different tools, and be and th- there's this world of emotions, and there's this world of coping, and there's this world where you don't have to be at you know work at an eleven every moment of your life to get by and there is a way to reconstruct i i would have been in um but i even heard that i I remember Hmm. being in the hospital and someone saying oh well you know if your job is causing you stress like this you might not be able to do that job that was totally unacceptable to me i could Hmm. i could not imagine not being able to be a documentary film producer uh who traveled like to all yeah. over the place. I couldn't imagine that. I ref- refused to accept it. It made Why? me furious. I don't know. I loved it. Cer- well, that's an easy. Yeah. <laughs> probably that's why. And there was like this certain thing of don't tell me what I can't do. It wasn't so much that my identity was in it because like, honestly, like that, that wasn't what it's about. Like I could have like imagined doing other things or other contexts or like teaching or like, there's other things yeah, I could yeah. have imagined if it, but someone telling me mm-hmm. this is how recovery goes and you can't do this anymore. In fear. You're on the other, you're on oh. the other side of that your whole life though. Yeah. You know, like, like you're saying, like if the house needs to get clean, like I'm doing that, you know, and it's one thing if it's cleaning, it's another thing when it's like your job mm-hmm. or it's your, your life just in general, like having outside control having someone else like dictate that that takes like a lot of vulnerability to like trust, you know, anybody to tell you, yeah, this thing that you love that you really want to do this lifestyle that you have, um, that's not going to work anymore. And guess what, Jesse, you're just going to have to fucking blindly trust me while you're also like <laughs> suffering yeah. in these really intense ways. It's like back against the wall, man. So yeah, I, I couldn't imagine anything else, but like, but this is why I, why I thought it was so important to create a mental health platform where we talk about these different ways, because if I had access to it, I really do think it would have been different. I looked for people who had other kinds of stories. There, when I got sick, I got sick it was a long time ago, already. it was 2011. There was one article in the New York times that was like published around the time I got sick of a person who used like, who was a who had similar symptoms to me? Had bipolar two, had uh, um, I, I don't remember the specifics, but it sounded like similar enough. And they he, he went on like low dose lithium, 
and move to Buenos Aires. If you look up Buenos Aires Bipolar 2 in the New York Times, you'll find the article. Um, and just with lifestyle changes, with being able to do that. And I tried to find this person on the internet, and I couldn't. I was like, I'm going to write him a letter. That was the only thing. And I looked, and I looked, and I looked. There wasn't very much. If I have, and I don't mean to like toot my own horn, and not that we couldn't do it better, but if I had like the, the two dozen interviews of patients who got better mm-hmm. all in different ways, I would have mm-hmm. said, oh, wait, like all of these different people have tried different things. Maybe there's this community piece. Everybody keeps really talking about that. I know I've yeah. needed that. Maybe I need some of that. Oh, you know what? Childhood neglect is a real thing. Maybe there are mm. some pieces there that might change this context. That's real, man. And there's this almost this disconnect. Cause I, so I was leading, I'm leading a group, you know, at a certain point in time. Um, and all of these, because I'm I'm big on expression, like of someone's truth. Like I don't want to like teach you some skills and then you, you know, repeat back to me like thought thought challenging is X Y Z and toot my own horn because I taught you well. I want people to be raw and real. And one of the things that they were saying is that yeah, sometimes I just feel like I tell my therapist what they want to hear. You know, because there's pressure. Um, to like measure up in a lot of different ways or to, you know, feel like I'm doing a good job or whatnot. Um, or just maybe if we're talking like residential programs, I want to get out of res. So I have to, I have to like bend the truth a little bit because this isn't working for me. I'm not feeling any better. Um, so then when you don't have that ability to connect to community, I think there's this huge disconnect in the field of psychology with like, well, no, our patients they don't identify with us as providers, you know? And um, when we almost act as if there's no space, I guess, to to be just a, a struggling patient, it's, it's almost like they're projecting their own like un- discomfort with the process of recovery onto people, trying to make it seem as if um, they can't just be. And that's where that community piece, I think, man, because I, I, sometimes I think my my own pain in understanding how much under, understanding for myself and for others who go through the same thing, I think that might be my greatest strength like as a therapist or even as like a supervisor or a lecturer on psychology. It's just that firsthand experience, but it's just odd how self-disclosure or inviting patients to speak on their own experiences, it's just drowned out with quote unquote experts who I sometimes feel like it's uh it's just intellectual masturbation. It's just like, I want to, be the smartest is, but this is, this is, these are lives. And too often, I think that's, there's a huge disconnect. So I can see why for you, that community, man, it's probably makes it easier yeah. to give yourself that grace it, and that. Yeah. You know. It just, tur- I mean, it just turns people like people just can't hear it. Right. Like if you're, if you're, if you're out there and you're a doctor and you want to be fancy and change the world and you aren't relating to like what Chappelle would say is the streets, people can't hear you. The people who need to hear you cannot hear you. 
you need to speak to the context. You need to speak to the now. You need to speak to humans, not to your own theories of the mind. No, like, I mean, you can do that mm. and there's a place for it, right? And you can like go hang out with Elon Musk and create the brainwave machine and good, but you're not helping people like me. Yeah. Um, it's uh, like, um, you're not, you're not a theory, you know, you're a person, right? We're not. I said this to a supervisee today, man. I said, uh, I said, you aren't a therapy protocol. You're a human. So as hard as you try, you can't fit that other human into your therapy protocol, nor can you fit yourself into that therapy protocol. And I think being human is a very underrated skill. Um, not just as like providers, as therapists, but just as just people. We think we're this factory line. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to grab at some major insight, but I think I'll just dance around it. Um, but I think us just being real about how, how we suffer and what we feel and building space for that. And I think that's kind of what I, what I hear you saying, building that space to talk about how difficult it is or how, you know, how encouraging it can be or just anything you really want to talk about that freedom. Yeah. For me, it was just like about, it was about finding peers who were able to do it. Interesting. Because I, I to see ah, you can't be what you can't see. Exactly. And and I would go and, mm. and around I went to like a lot of NAMI support groups and the culture was just like giving up. Right. Like it was just like I'm just I I had a normal life. So many people, the main narrative of going around these circles and NAMI meetings I went to in uh in the Pacific Northwest and oh. in the Bay Area was I had a normal life, then I got depressed, now I live with my parents. And that's just how it yeah. is forever. There's Ugh. no no experimentation. Like game no over. Trying. Game over. People eating huge amounts of junk food and whatever. You could do it. Do what you want. I don't care. But like, I want to be around people who figured out another way. And that was just like one thing. Mm. I don't know if that's like a thing that people know about in mental health worlds. But like, people just bring like like everyone bringing donuts eating donuts, drinking huge amounts of soda in a recovery circle. I was just like, what? And then everybody talking about how their lives are over. That was the opposite of helpful for me. I needed something hmm. else. And hmm. I want to do something. We, uh, yeah, we talk, we talk about this all the time, man. It's, um, you know what? It, it agitates me. It just agitates me that, we sometimes use support support groups as mental health professionals. We want to validate people's experiences, but what we end up doing is validating hopelessness yeah. that we ourselves as mental health providers have the power to to speak to and undo in a certain Interrupt. way because we're the ones, yeah, we're the ones that we're, we're patho we're naming the pathology and then people fit within the pathology and then people are like, well, I guess I'm my pathology. And then we as mental health providers are like, yeah, yes, you are. Uh, what, what you're, 
you're a human and you have a capacity for joy moment to moment. You might not feel good in this moment, but this next moment you could. But we we just only attend to just that that level of trying and trying and trying. And then when when we hit walls or things, we then reinforce the hopelessness. We don't look at the whole picture. Well, okay. Um, there's plenty of research to show that, you know, certain foods might cause or promote depression, um, you know, or enhance those symptoms or anxiety or panic or whatnot. But then we're going to, you know, we don't in the field of psychology have a coordinated effort at maybe banning these types of foods at certain events. If we have the data, we're always so research, research, research. Well, what about this research? What about the research from the physical health side? We're just so ignorant. I mean, do you, I mean, I I don't know. Maybe people out there can, can tell us if you go to like a heart walk, do you, are there people chain smoking on on their, (laughs) like on their 4k or whatever, 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 what is like a 5k? Uh, that what a 10k. I don't, I'm not a runner, obviously. I don't know the case, man. I don't know the case. You're running around, you're running around your neighborhood to raise money for heart awareness. Are there people just chain smoking cigarettes or would that be in bad taste? Cause to me, it seems like that would be in bad taste, but when it comes to mental health, whatever, drink a gallon of soda. Sure. Drink. Yeah. The data is very fucking clear. It's, it's there. (laughs) It's there. And then it's, um, I don't, I don't know, but well, I do know, and it's just sad. I don't want to say it, but I will. Uh, when people aren't the ones suffering in the present moment, um, but they're the ones who are making the rules, mm-hmm. and then saying, "Well, to participate in therapy, you need to be willing to do X, Y, and Z," then people listen to that stuff, and then guess what? They fucking do it mm-hmm. because they care about themselves, because they love themselves, they want to get better. And then when they don't get better, your response is, oh, well, you can do a support group or you want more meds or, oh, okay, we have nothing to offer like nutrition wise. We have, I don't know, that sense of urgency, I think, isn't understood when you are not suffering in that moment. Mm -hmm. And I also think it's the issue of therapists, a lot of therapists where we want to we want to help people heal, but we're unwilling to sit with them in their pain. But that sitting in the pain is very important to develop that sense of urgency. If you can't attune to and feel how another person is feeling and be willing to enter into that world with them, then how can you honestly say that your policies say maybe for the APA, American Psychological Association, um, how can you honestly say that policies that you create from a place of policymaker rather than emotionally attuned therapist, right? You're, you're missing the mark because you're not sitting there doing the work. And similar to a lot of these researchers who create all the interventions, they do therapy like, I mean, the, you know, some of them like once a week and like, thank, thank goodness, even for that, you know, but I think it's a, it's a bit absurd that researchers and academics say that this is the best treatment when they aren't actually doing therapy, they're just trying to do the treatments that they then create to then validate the fact that they work. And then that brings them more acclaim in their careers and it brings them grant money. It makes it so that they keep their jobs or get tenure. So the whole system should be about like mental health and healing, not, you know, who can publish the most papers 
you know, um, everything is just so siloed and cut off. Um, you you want to folks for folks listening, it's almost like what I'm saying is essentially, um, you know, Mitch McConnell needs to go live in the West end of Louisville for four months. And if he got that experience, that firsthand experience, I would bet you money that he would then change. He would then change his attitude, but he doesn't have the firsthand experience that ground level of things, nor is he willing to just go, Hey, okay, you don't want to go live there. Okay. We'll have a family from the West end of Louisville live in your house and listen to them and really listen and help them and tell them and uh, listen to their stories, you know, ask them about their, their lives and really listen and really listen with the, with the openness and willingness to be changed by what you hear. And then you will change. But that lack of emotional attunement from top to bottom uh, makes it very, very hard to have mental illness and then really recover and not just recover, but believe you can recover. Because for, for me, this is about belief and confidence. It's just not, man. And it's necessary. And I, I hate, I hate, go, I hate going into the complaining because like it's easy to like become what you're criticizing right i i look at like the landscape and the conversations of online mental health which is where a lot of people go you got a hospitalization you come home you go online you see sites like the mighty and you just see mm -hmm. a sea of despair with no hope and mm -hmm. no possibilities man man and i don't want to sit here and just criticize and criticize and get into the space of like nothing can change until the mighty changes or until our landscape changes, <laughs> right because then i become yeah. then i become what i'm criticizing but turn yeah. that fucking shit off you don't have to, yeah you don't gotta wait for it you could do it right yeah. now and it's not it's not a right-wing ideology to explore your own agency because you you have enough to make a dent and you're yeah. worth the dent to make yeah, man. And it's, um, I think it's really, it's sad to me that these people that you're describing, you know, it's sad to me that the, a field, an entire field, field of psychology and mental health, um, their public facing avenues are that hopeless. You know, does that make sense what I'm saying? Like, the fact that they don't even think there's a possible way um that's really disheartening i'm i'm thankful that you know through you know through your interviews and all that you know and through you know uplifting some of these voices and all that that we can change a narrative and find these people um but i just you know i talk i talk shit about you know the word should shouldn't exist all the time but um i think the Field of mental health has to do a better job of lifting up the authentic voices of their patients who who find ways and then also are willing to lift up other modalities that work. Because if this is about mental health, then it doesn't matter about your methods. It's about mental health. How do people heal? Even if it's outside, you know, of what of what of therapy. You know, what are those things? Um and how can we how can we show the world proof that these folks exist and really dominate that conversation? Um, but well, it's, it's, uh, 
just like you did, man. It's you want something done, you got to do it yourself sometimes. You got to do it and, and find the people. Um, just, and hopefully we can help accelerate that, yeah, right? Because, I mean, the, the other thing I want to mention is like all the stuff that I've done and all the wacky things that I've tried, I have done living on public services. Like I am a person, I, and I, you know, may, you know, it, there's not a lot, like I have, I have to be very creative on the resource side of it as well. Right. So that's something I can share also. And that's something we talk about. Like I, I don't just tell people, poor people go to a naturopath. Not everybody can do that. But if you're lucky to live in the right place, there might be options where you can go to see students for free. There might be options yeah. that you can have, if, even if you're in a bad place, have a friend write a letter to a naturopath to see somebody for free. It happens. It's not that there, the people yeah, there, you there, it Medicaid in a like in Washington state is really robust. You can do DBT, you can do EMDR on it. Um, there's a lot of possibilities for poor folks. That doesn't mean it's easy, that doesn't mean that systemic oppression shouldn't exist and this shouldn't be way easier. That we don't want to create a world mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. this shit is accessible to people and it's easier. You don't have to go through all that. I'm not saying that. I want that world. I'm not saying it's all your fault if you can't access it. I'm not saying that either. I'm saying it's fucking mm -hmm. hard. It's brutally mm -hmm. fucking hard. This is a hard... If you want to like integrate all of the things that you have access to, it's it's a war. It's a battle. But that's a fucking mindset, okay? You are... Your mm -hmm. life is worth fighting for. And if you're disadvantaged, mm -hmm. you got to fight even harder. But fucking, like, please... If I can leave people with one thing, is that your life is worth fucking fighting for. And the, all of the fucking messages of, oh, it's so fucking hard. Yes, it is fucking hard. It's fuck, it makes the fight harder, and it's not fair. Mm -hmm. But what are we going to mm -hmm. do? What do you, yeah. Right? Focus on what we already know and commiserate in it. Or, like, say, yeah, it's hard. Okay, well, it means I'm going to have to fight here. And that doesn't mean we can't you know? commiserate That's sometime and mourn. Right? Right, together. It's appropriate. It's appropriate. It doesn't mean, you know, but this black and white thinking that we get in that we are in in this political moment of 2020 really fucks up the mental health conversation. Right. Like we can fight for justice and fight for ourselves. At the same time, you know, we realize that it should be easier. Yeah, man. Yeah. And, um, you know, usually it's it's you uh, on this end of things, but I'm noticing <laughs> Time wise, we should uh, we should continue this conversation and maybe in our next segment talk a little bit about certain turning points, you know, that we might have had certain methods that did give us that hope or certain moments that, you know, where we started to make a make a shift, you know, in, in our thinking when we put our heads down and we fight, 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 we're like, when is this going to stop being such a battle? <laughs> I think we always have those moments where, oh, okay, okay, okay. I found something. So let's, um, let's uh, talk more about that a, li a little bit, a uh, little bit in our next segment. Very good. Jesse, Jesse, any, any last <laughs> words, man? You like that? You I like, like that? it. I like it. This is uh, the Dr. Broderick podcast. I versus I final words, follow Dr. Broderick on Twitter. Broderick A88, follow Jesse Mann at Zookman on the Twitter machine. We're coming up with ideas. And uh, yeah, follow us. Uh, check us. Check out the next, next segment. We'll talk a little bit about turning points, interventions, and when can you fucking end the goddamn fight once nah, you decided nah, nah, to fight? Nah, nah, nah. Boom. Boom. Bada bing, bada boom. Zagazunt.